everyone. This is Holly Herndon. I'm Matt Dryhurst. And you're listening to Interdependent. to this, you're listening to the free version. This podcast is completely ad-free and only possible through listener support. That sounds like a standard line, but it's true. It takes time and care to put this together, and without patrons, we won't be able to carve out the time to do this. So if you enjoy this podcast and would like to see it continue, please visit patreon.com interdependence and subscribe, where you'll get access to our most recent conversations, as well as an archive of full-length past episodes. Thank you for listening. Bring, bring, bring. Hi, Tyler. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) How are you? (laughs) We're okay. You know, we're kind of like slowly entering the cold of winter, Berlin winter. So we're. It's well, we're going to talk about time a lot, I think, um, judging from from our preamble uh, before the recording. Um, (laughs) And yeah, this year's been a lot. There's been a lot to get excited about, and it's been a lot, and now it's getting cold and it's getting dark, <laughs> and we're like, "What the fuck?" Like, it's like, yeah, it's been a lot. How are you? <laughs> I, I'm I'm doing pretty good. Like, I mean, uh, to be honest, like a little bit kind of disoriented, right? Like through all this this whole experience, like since basically February, I kind of feel like I've been parachuted into kind of unknown territory, and I'm trying to trying to find my bearings and find out what is what, and uh, in um in that I'm still in that process. Um, but I'm doing well. It's interesting. That makes a lot of sense. I really would love to dig into that a little bit further because you've had such a very dramatic kind of life shift over the past 12 months, is it? Um, but just to get started, if you could just introduce yourself briefly to our audience who might not be familiar with you or your art practice, that would be great. Sure. So I'm I'm the artist known as, as Deaf Beef. Um, and I could talk about what where that name comes from maybe a little bit later. Sure. Um, but, uh, uh, I'm an audiovisual generative artist. So I use, um, uh, I write code that makes sound in animation. And in particular, I use a very kind of basic tool set, kind of a minimal tool set, uh, um, a fundamental essential language called C language. And I use only a cheap laptop and some headphones and my interface is just a text editor. Um, And so I work in this way for a number of reasons. Um, One is to sort of, it's kind of to avoid the moving target of media production tools. Mm -hmm. Um, I found myself uh, uh, many times uh, in the position where I've worked on something and then a few years later, I can't, I can't use it anymore to get it or the cost of the time investment to get it working in a state that I could. um, It's just too much. And so Mm -hmm. I chose this, this way of working in order to uh, allow myself uh, 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 the opportunity for the tools to not change. And so that I can just focus on honing myself and my own craft um, rather than worrying about, about this kind of like moving target. Um, And then also there's uh, 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 working. It's also like, I started this as kind of an exploratory journey uh, to see what I could do. It's kind of reinventing the wheel um, uh, for my own kind of personal, you know, uh, exploratory journey, learning, um, and and uh, that's the other main reason that uh, that I work this way. So, 
uh, I was doing that all before NFTs, um, uh, making making kind of abstract audiovisual outputs uh, using code, and then um, more recently it intersected with blockchain technology earlier this year uh, and started. Um, uh, uh, it was it was a it was there was this intersection between um, on chain generative art and what I was doing, and so it it uh, it was a, it was a meetup. It was circumstantial that these two things kind of came together the way they did. Um, but it was, a, it was, it was a good fit. And, um, uh, and so I started, um, releasing, uh, some of my work as, as on-chain, uh, generative art NFTs. And, and, and then from there, it, it uh, many things have happened. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Many things have happened. Um, what was your, maybe this is too early to ask this, but I'm dying to ask this. Like, what was your primary, um, method of distributing your work pre pre chain pre nft okay so um i mean for this particular kind of like workflow that i've been doing it's been since the start of the pandemic so that was um uh i guess uh like when was that april 2020 is that right mm-hmm. um and so at that time um uh well now our kids are home from school and like i kind of i felt like i had lack of agency um didn't have much time to do anything right and so kind of as my little rebellion was saying okay i'm going to take carve out some time whenever i can like you know two hours just in the in the dead of night or whatever and and do something weird and creative and so i started this practice then and it was not because i intended really to share it with anyone and so for the first six months or so um it's really just for my own personal enjoyment of of tinkering and Mm -hmm. and figuring out what i could do um so now, getting the point about distribution, what 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 uh, I came to realize that there was, um, uh, well, I wanted to see where where I could share it, and the obvious things with like it was sound. It, uh, sorry to back up. It uh, my focus was 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 first on sound, right? I wanted to I, I wanted to make sound. Mm-hmm. Um, it was only later that I started integrating the visuals for the reasons that I'll say. Um, but uh, I was like, okay, how can I share this? How can I tell people about this? And the kind of like obvious things are things like, you know, like, uh, like, I don't know, like music sharing platforms like SoundCloud or, or things like that. But I, w- uh, I found that there was on Instagram, there was a community of people interested in modular synthesizers. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. they would post like little videos of them, you know, turning knobs and stuff and all the bright lights, but then also <laughs> the music part of it. And it's like, ah, this is where I can, this is how I can fit in. Um, and, and it's, it's complementary to that because it's the same type of exploratory things as the, as the, the, uh, the same ethos as the modular synth stuff, mm-hmm. but it's, it's kind of a different, it's a, it's, it's the opposite approach. It's using like no gear rather mm-hmm. than a whole lot of gear. <laughs> um, well, I mean, it, actually it, it was kind of the inspiration for it because when I, um, this is jumping around again, but, um, no, this is good. Uh, Jump around. Okay. All right. All right. So, um, like I've been living under a rock for the past sort of eight years because (laughs) since when our kids were born. Right. And so I've missed out on a whole bunch of things, just haven't been paying attention. And I was really, when I kind of like came out, like, you know, uh, after they got a little bit older and like kind of came out back into the world, I, I discovered that modular synthesizers had come back into style. Mm -hmm. Um, right. There was this, uh, uh, like there was a period where it, it was really, there wasn't like as much support around, around that type of thing, but then it gained popularity. And I realized, Oh wow, there's like, you can go to the music store and there's, 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 there's like uh, uh, boutique companies that are making modular synths mm-hmm. and, and it, and it, uh, um, 
yeah, it was popular again. So I was like, wow, that's really cool. I want to, I want to do something creative with this. Um, I like I'd studied electrical engineering. I've always been into music technology. Um, it's like, yeah, this is, this is my thing. And that kind of, uh, like the exploratory nature of it. But then when I started looking into it a little bit more, it, it seemed like there, there was also an element of consumerism, uh, baked into it and, um, like acquiring, acquiring mm-hmm. magic black boxes mm-hmm. to try it's to find. It's an expensive find. habit. Yeah. It's an expensive, it's an expensive habit. habit. Yeah. I mean, we're saying this in the context of NFTs, so I understand <laughs> wow. how absurd that is, <laughs> but it is an expensive habit. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know it is, right? And, and I've already been through that before. <laughs> I, I'd already been through that before because uh, um, earlier in my life, I ran a recording studio and was kind of in the oh, same wow. position where trying trying to acquire gear to find like the best sound, right? And mm-hmm. it's like, oh, if it doesn't sound the right way, it's because I need to buy something. Yes, mm-hmm. right? I, I hear and, that. And I've, I've, I've been through that already. I'd been on that bandwagon. <laughs> and so I knew it was like, no, it has to stop, right? And, and this... Um, uh, because of the experience I'd had since then, I'd studied electrical engineering. I knew about about these things. I was uh, I'm a programmer. Um, uh, I was like, you know what? No, I don't have to do that. If I want to explore sound and music, I could do this much. I can, for my set of experiences, I can do this with a computer, right? Mm-hmm. And not you, mm-hmm. and in a, in a unique way, like not not using any pre-programmed software and stuff. I could I could do something about this. It's in the same spirit of of exploration. Um, I forget what the the point of this all was. Where was I going to? No, that's what great. I mean, it's, Matt wanted to ask something. No, no, I'm going to take it further. No, it's true. It, it is funny how like thinking about the contrast between there was definitely a period on SoundCloud where everything was very much oriented around people's kind of inherited listening habits, right? It was like people used to get excited about albums or whatever, and then SoundCloud kind of turned up and that became it's kind of like the most online way to listen to a record pre playlists and stuff and then the whole modular synthesis thing the comparison i always made i'm going to take this totally off script excuse me but like the comparison i always made is it's like modular synth culture works really well online in the same way that cooking does (laughs) right you know like like the preponderance like the just complete proliferation of like watching people make exciting things with their hands Yes. It's yep. very much the same. It's, so it's like as Instagram kind of took off, it's no wonder to me whatsoever that like, and we would see this like going to play shows or festivals, right? Like all of a sudden there was this emphasis on cameras looking at hands doing things. Right. And like yeah. you could be in an audience with thousands of people and you'd be looking at a screen and there's kind of like some silhouetted person with some lights around them, you know, but like the screen behind is like their hands like changing the VCO. And then you can kind yep. of like hear but, but it's a very visual medium in a way Honestly, which rich does that i mean he does it really well richie Houghton, like his live show there's like multiple cameras mm-hmm. set up and he's got like a cooking show it's he's cooking. got all of his decks and then he's got his right. kind of like he also has a bunch of like euro rack modules and stuff that he's playing and remixing yeah. and everything and it's like yeah you could like, totally they're like show. splicing between it's totally a cooking show. but this is something we came up against a lot when well when i first started touring because i was doing a lot of real-time synthesis in uh, max msp and i love using Max because I could kind of quickly, you know, change a patch or like, you know, reroute something or, you know, rather than having to like solder a <laughs> cable, right. you know, in, in grad school, I was like, I had to make synthesizers and stuff. And I was like, wow, this is really intense. <laughs> like if you want to change a path, you have to like unscrew the box and like <laughs> unsolder something. So I was really excited to find Max. Um, and, and I just loved how kind of like, um, yeah, easy it was to change and move things around. But when we would start touring, you know, people 
would kind of like turn their nose up at me rolling up with my laptop because they're like, oh, that's not cool looking. Or like <laughs> people would put the laptop underneath the table and then stick their boxes on top of the well, table. The, the justice yeah. move. Is yeah. You have a bunch of, you have a bunch of <laughs> hollow boxes. <laughs> right. Well, this is the question I have, right? Because uh, like I haven't been involved in like performance and stuff. And and I've always been curious, like when, when I was younger, when, when I saw like DJs and stuff, I was like, oh. Like, what are they doing? That yeah, looks yeah. so interesting, right? And like, they must be doing something really crazy and they're improvising it on the spot. And they're like, you know, like creating this whole structure on the spot. And then I was really disappointed to kind of find out that like a lot of it was sort of, you know, just pressing play, right? <laughs> yeah. And I'm not, but 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 then like, obviously, like, you know, uh, there, it, it branched out from there. And there are people that are doing like much more like different things and stuff with with technology on stage. But um, like I've, it's always been a question to me um, of like how much is prepared in advance, mm-hmm. um, like, you know, and like how, and how much of it is like, you know, it's like it's just like a performance because comparing it to a cooking show. Um, that's an interesting <laughs> comparison because oftentimes they're like, okay. And then, and then now you go to this other thing and they have like something pre-chopped and pre-prepared and they can just pour, <laughs> they can just pour it right in. Right. To keep the, because you, you don't want to see all the like nitty gritties. Right. Yeah. It's very boring to watch what I do when I make music. <laughs> right. Exactly. Extremely boring. Um, totally. but if I was going to go and take this on the road or something <laughs> like that, I would, I would, I would put, put it in a way somehow so that, you know, it would make like part of it would be like true to that, but then another part of it would be performative, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to get the totally. idea across. And it also speaks to the fact, I mean, to continue with the, the very important cooking discussion. Um, <laughs> I remember sitting, so like uh, Holly's sister and her family watch some of these competitive cooking shows and like, oh. and that's a big thing, right? I mean, like yeah. I, I occasionally I like intersect with the real world and I'm like, whoa, that's a really big deal. Like bake-offs and like whatever. That's like and DJ it, battles, right? <laughs> well, yeah. And, and, and the other side to it, which is kind of inherent and actually quite a positive thing. I don't mean it as a pejorative is like, oftentimes when people watch the cooking shows, their response is, huh, I wouldn't have done it like that. You know, it's very much, it's a participatory desire. It's not necessarily like a, I mean, definitely don't get us wrong. Like we definitely have the, there's always a few people who are like, uh, scrutinizing already right like the, where the the desire there is to kind of like be like oh oh you do that oh you know whatever but in, mo- but in most cases i have to actually include on my writer that people weren't allowed to stand on the side of my stage because they would try to film my laptop screen oh, i was yeah. like this is psycho <laughs> you should alpha. listen to the music yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, 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 but it's also just like a, a reality like the positive side of it is the rea- a reality is that for the vast majority like of artists you know your audience are all also making music Right. So it's a similar, it's a similar interaction to the cooking shows in that way, because people are genuinely curious what you're doing because they're going to go home and do stuff themselves. Right. Which is absolutely very nice. This can can tie in also with like the, uh, with the generative art culture as well. Totally. Uh, You know, the, the, it's like as a participatory activity, like that's how I experienced generative art before all of this, right? Mm-hmm. Like people sharing things online and, and, and really it's about like when people look at it, it's not because they want to go and hang it in their house. It's like, oh, that's really cool. I yep. want to do that too. Totally. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, like I want to be involved in this. Totally. And so that, that community aspect for sure. Um, and yeah, totally. it, and, and it ties back to like, yeah, it makes sense that Instagram 
um, and in modular sense, like came together, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, and those recipes are highly contested, right? I mean, this came up recently with a was it like an Art Blocks release where so, someone I, I I tried I tried desperately not to get too in the weeds with with drama, but there was some drama where someone had used a recipe <laughs> from a previous generative artist, and the you know the latter. Uh, case was selling better than the first case or uh, something along these lines and it's like it is it is also yeah with generative stuff exactly like the the transitioning from it being largely for a lot of people also also like a therapeutic thing right it's like yes. a art it's an activity sake, yeah. it's an activity it's something that's like really fun to do it's kind of like creating puzzles for yourself and solving those puzzles and resolving those puzzles with something very beautiful oftentimes or rewarding right like when you all of a sudden you know in that kind of like community of sharing some people do better than others you know then for, that's where there's an issue exactly yeah. for external reasons that the world is complicated etc then it then it kind of raises an issue but it's but it is really interesting it is kind of like a it that feels like for a field like generative art where you know, let's be real, right? Like it's only really very recently that there's been kind of serious market interest around a lot of that stuff mm-hmm. uh, with very the exception recently. of like museum collections or whatever of like foundational work. Yeah, but that was few and far. Even then, yeah. even yeah. then, yeah. even then, like this is stuff that's being worked out in real time, which is pretty, pretty interesting. And also in a way, like to bring it back to the work you've been doing, I mean, like the um, one thing I really admire about, I mean, the word aesthetic comes up a lot. Um, that's not aesthetic. That's aesthetic. Aesthetic, aesthetic, aesthetic. Yes, exactly, (laughs) exactly. Um, But there's something really cool in the sense that, like, with your practice, it's a lot of it is very, very legible and it's very foundational, right? Like, you're talking about like compiling in C. A lot of the works that you're making are intentionally permanent, right? Like, intentionally kind of um, uh, foundational, low level, interacting directly with interacting directly on chain for permanency reasons and also aesthetic reasons. Um, and yeah, and, and, and in, in a way that I think separates a lot of the work you've been doing from a, a great deal of, of, yeah, of, of generative work that I've seen, I've seen out there in, in, it's in, in the, in those constraints. Right. Um, and to, to be honest, like that kind of came about a little bit circumstantially, right? Like, uh, like people have asked me about, uh, it's like, why, uh, like, did you have the idea that you wanted to have your, your work, like when you started, like for it to be like archival, right? Like, are you looking forward to like distant futures so someone could recreate your work? And it wasn't, it wasn't really for that reason. It was really just for myself. Yeah. So that if I have to take a break for a few years, which could be the case, right. Yeah. Um, when I started was uh, that I want to be able to come back to it and not have to reinstall another operating system or whatever to make it work. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. it was really just a practical mm-hmm. consideration for, for myself. And that circumstantially intersected with this theme of, um, uh, uh, of permanence uh, that has to do with, with on-chain art. I call it a theme. I'm not mm-hmm. going to necessarily say that it's like actually like, you know, uh, like a practical thing, um, like the idea of storing um, storing code on the Ethereum blockchain so that, you know, so that it's more permanent than if you were to, you know, archive it in different ways. I don't mm-hmm. think that necessarily holds. I think that there's there's ways to, you know, preserve, there's experts on this, to preserve like media and stuff or in, in other ways that doesn't involve storing the code directly on the blockchain. But there's a theme of permanence because of, uh, in, in blockchain and in the culture as well um, and sort of an ethos of it. It's interesting to have these memory constraints and it kind of informs the practice. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so and, and that, 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 that uh, influences the type of work that you'll get. 
Um, and then also exploring that as conceptually, like as uh, like, you know, ideas of permanence are, you know, that's that's conceptually vast. Like there's lots of things that you can you can think and do with that. I think this resonates with the crypto community, especially, you know, for obvious reasons that you've already stated and also for, you know, so much being directly on chain, but also this idea of of, of, of permanence where, you know, like so much of a creator's life is invested in platforms like Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. And these are obviously impermanent spaces that the creator has zero control over. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I feel like crypto is trying to push back against um, pretty dramatically. So it's really nice to see this artwork as really a kind of embodiment of that ethos. Yeah, it's and future-proofing, right? right? It's like future-proofing things. That's a really interesting and fascinating field. I was at UCLA for for a minute and there's a professor there called Erki Hutamo I'd really recommend. He wrote an amazing book called media archaeology and he also has an insane collection like an incredible collection of what could be described as like antiquated media or i don't know if antiquated is pejorative but like but he would talk about that a lot right like there were a lot of very physical kind of art making devices in there or art archive devices in there from a while back and it was really really striking where you're like wow yeah like for a period of time like a lot of this stuff still works and then we we digitize things, right? And then you you introduce all these problems with with the convenience of digital, but you introduce all these problems. And actually, it's far harder to get some of these works from like the early '90s to play now than it would be Absolutely. to get this thing from like the 1800s that he has in his office. It's pretty well, cool. I mean, it's, it's it's an interesting way to think about it. Absolutely. Like, I mean, yeah. I mean, that resonates with me for sure. Um, uh, yeah. Like this. Sim- like. Old technologies, like people might think of them as as being obsolete, but you know, in some cases, uh, in many cases, they're kind of like like you said, they're more they're they're fundamental, right? Like mm-hmm. like magnetic tape that mm-hmm. has a single, you know, it's a one one dimensional signal on it, and you have to read the voltage off of it, and that's not going away. Like it's mm-hmm. not like you're not going to be able to read magnetic tape in the future, mm-hmm. right? It's uh it, and and uh, and like physical machines. Well, I mean, they will wear away and things like that. But it's just a simpler. It's more redundant. It's a more mm-hmm. redundant mm-hmm. format. And once you start introducing all these extra complexities with uh, with software and the, the 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 dependencies that are that are created in between all these supporting systems and things, um, it's a trade off, right? Like it makes some things more convenient um, or, or better, like in, in, by some measure, but, but at the same time, like, yes, more kind of transient, Mm -hmm. um, in nature. So. Yeah. And I feel like also our collective imagination has been influenced by a lot of sci-fi and kind of prepper fiction, like Octavia Butler and, you know, uh, the walking dead and things like this, where it's like the cell phones are useless, but the kind of like, I don't know, crank radio or whatever. Right. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, yeah. ends up like saving the day. Right. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Right. I wonder if this ties into also your passion for blacksmithing. That's, that's, True, right? That you're a blacksmith as well. Yes, yes. So I'm, a, I'm uh, um, prior to prior to crypto, like in in the space of years. Um, uh, well, just jumping around, but uh, in the space of years, was it before my kids were born? Um, yeah, I started working metal as a hobby, mm-hmm. and um, and and at first, it, at first, I wanted to make like welded sculpture. That was like the kind of precursor to it, and make machines and things. And I went to this night class and started working. Uh, working metal and they had a forge there. So this is when you heat the metal and you mm-hmm. can deform it like as if it's like clay. 
And I thought that was fascinating. And then learning more about how uh, tools are made and the the interest the, the overlap with coding is is this: it's that when you're working, uh, if you're forging steel, mm-hmm. then you make your own tools. So it's 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 homogenous, right? Like mm-hmm. the material is the same, right? right? Your hammer is you for, for the first tool that you make is you take stones and then you forge a hammer. Okay, you use your stone as a hammer and a bigger stone as an anvil, and you make a hammer. Now you have your hammer, and okay, and so then now you have a tool that you've made, and then you use that to better um, like forge like other tools, right? Mm-hmm. And and this happens all the time when you're working in flow, like uh, with metal, uh, you often get into this kind of thing. You're solving problems, you're figuring out how to make the next kind of jig that you'll need to to make a, a certain piece, and you're making that out of metal. You're bending it, you're cutting it, or whatever. But it's all it's all the same type of material, and it and it and it really uh, like these building up these kind of like processes and jigs to make it more efficient is the same is the same thing when you're writing like you know uh, when you're you're writing a function in code so you can call it again. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. they yeah, I really kind of think of them the same as being sort of self contained systems mm-hmm. where you do not have to go beyond what you have at arm's length in order to meet your goals. So you you can focus just on that and not have to think about. Um, like, you know, going to the hardware store or mm-hmm. like, you know, stopping for a while and ordering a part that has to come in or, or like, you know, like waiting for a, or trying to upgrade a certain software package or whatever. It's just, it's all within your locus of control. And the only thing that you have to worry about is sort of yourself and your own knowledge and your own store of tools that you build up over time in both cases. This um, is great. That makes so much sense. It's like, yeah, like self-sufficiency and like establishing your own toolkits and your own dependencies. Mm-hmm. It's funny, uh, it, speaking about this, uh, perhaps this name means something to you, but I remember Holly studied with a brilliant guy at Mills called Dan Good. Do you remember Dan? Mm-hmm. Who is like a, a very, very, very talented engineer, incredibly technically competent, who was working in music for a long time. He was at MIT. And then at some point he's like, I'm going to go and build big metal things. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, and he just, yeah. he just got, he like, dived into it and he would disappear for a long period of time and then reappear with these insane large <laughs> sculptures. And it's like, initially you're like, well, what are you doing? And I'm like, actually, no, this is, this is completely consistent for the reasons that you're stating. Right. Cause like he was very much like he wanted to create puzzles and solve them for himself. Mm-hmm. Right. And, it, and he was an incredibly self-sufficient person. Like I would, I would be happy to be, uh, you know, on the island in the apocalypse with Dan Good there. <laughs> like he, you would, eat, you would eat well. You know what I mean? Like he knows, he knows how right. to build things. Um, and again, yeah. it's, it's very foundational. I mean, it's like, yeah, this is like the 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 yeah the the art the art part of 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 art of, of, of yeah. What, what you're saying about what you're saying about like the apocalypse is like I mean like we often think about this like in blacksmithing communities and stuff right it's like well, how could you rebuild the world right and like what would you need right and uh, and so and there's been people like I know a bunch of of people that have done this they've done it multiple times where they 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 get rid of all their tools and they start with rocks okay oh, with wow. a big rock and a smaller rock and they will actually get iron from the ground like they will um, if it's an iron rich uh, place, then they can get a bunch of soil and you put it in a type of, uh, um, clay furnace that will, will make a steel bloom. And then, Mm -hmm. and then, and then, and they'll go through this process of like making a hammer. And then Mm -hmm. from that, 
you know, like then it's more efficient to do the next step. And so I know people have done that and they've done it more than once because it's like, it's, it's kind of like, there's something really, uh, there's something really, uh, what's the word, but, uh, yeah. Reassuring maybe. Maybe it's, I don't know if it's reassuring. Like, I mean, but, but like you really are just, re- it's obsessive. Yes. You're reinventing, you're reinventing the, the wheel on purpose. And that's yeah. uh, what mm. I knew that when I was, was started this process, like, you know, like writing, uh, writing code to like make sound. Like, I know that it's like, I'm, it's kind of a waste of time. Like I'm reinventing the wheel. Um, uh, but, but to me, it's new, right? So it doesn't yeah. matter if it's not new to the rest of the world. I've been in, in uh, I've been in uh, academia and like felt the pressure where I can't work on something because even though it's so interesting, fascinating, it's like oh, it's already been done, mm-hmm. right? So I I don't I but I want to explore it, right? Like mm-hmm. why can't I just ignore the like you know just suspend disbelief and uh, and and be able to work on on something that's that's like you said like creating puzzles for yourself, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so. Uh, uh, coming back to coding, um, what was my point? Well, this That's ties right. into something that I saw reoccurring on your Twitter. You have, the, I think it's a meme that you're that you're uh, reproducing where you say first a lot, maybe make poking fun at oh. people for saying they're the first. <laughs> and it kind of right. reminds me of what you're talking about yeah. here. Can we talk about that a minute? Like, what's this obsession with first? <laughs> okay, sure. Okay, all right. So, I mean, that's kind of that's kind of a big story. But um, so what? It, <laughs> Like what, what, uh, this, uh, like I have a project related to this. Right. But, uh, mm-hmm. but what it came out of, what it, what it started with was just like sort of noticing, like I only came into the space in February. Right. So like, I'm kind of new to it. And so just like seeing the different ways that, that, uh, uh, that, that, that people are, um, are, are talking about NFTs and on chainness and things. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of discussion about, about what came first. Right. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 and sort of like, uh, kind of sort of, sort of like too much almost. Right. And, um, uh, with all the, um, uh, kind of like crazy stuff that's happened, like sort of in the summer with like, uh, with NFTs and, you know, like huge kind of purchases, like sky high prices and things. Mm -hmm. And like also for my own work, like I didn't know, I didn't, I couldn't, I didn't know what was going on. I was trying to figure out like, what is what, (laughs) And like, and, and there's so many voices that are coming, like saying like, you know, um, like this is important, that is important and why it's important and stuff. And, um, it sort of came out of, out of, out of that in a sense. And I, I, I started doing, I started, uh, after loot project, mm-hmm. uh, dropped, um, I, I, uh, I saw this opportunity to, I don't know, it, it was in the span of just a few days, but I had this idea to do this kind of mad libs type of generative text um project mm-hmm. um that uh that kind of that 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 poked fun like in a satirical way about some of these things and 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 so it it, it centered around like to tie it together like uh they're all about something that's the first right and so <laughs> it's the first insert like many qualifiers you know <laughs> nft that is you know deemed whatever like important and stuff by some institution or some like like institution of power and like funny ones, right? Like the Vatican <laughs> or the SEC or, you know, um, like a crypto bro, um, uh, uh, a right-wing news anchor, a left-wing academic, whatever, you know what I mean? And so putting together all these different combinations and stuff, you get these kind of hilarious kind of absurd um, uh, things that, that comment about things being first, right? 
Um, and and you have to look, you will have to read through for people that are listening. You'd have to look through a bunch of them to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but and so so I did I did this this uh, I did uh, this drop of it kind of in the same way as loot. Mm-hmm. Um, not because it has anything really to do with loot, but because of the popularity of loot, I could sort of piggyback on that a bit. <laughs> um, and, uh, this is all for charity, by the way, right? Like I, I think that they, they, they minted for like 0.01 ETH or something. There was 5,000 of them. hundred percent went completely directly to give directly, uh, charity. That's amazing. Um, um and so I didn't intend this to be a big thing. Like it was just kind of so, supposed to be for fun. Um, and so, uh, and, but, but like I'm presenting it as a, as a satirical thing. And so when I posted about it on Twitter, um, uh, in advance of it, of it launching, um, I said that, okay, all right. Uh, in, in a few hours time, I'm going to be dropping something that's the first in its category. <laughs> and, and, uh, and Twitter went absolutely insane. Like I, I, I got like, like thousands and thousands of new followers in the space of, of hours. Right. And, uh, I didn't, I didn't know like that, just like, you know, that, th- that this would take place. And so when you did the drop, it like broke Ethereum, you know, like when they had these drops at that time, like the gas prices went insane, like people spending like 500 times more than what it costs just based on gas. Um, uh, uh, I, I, uh, I uh, presented it as a satirical work, but it went over, I think, a lot of people's heads. And yeah. there was a huge swarm of speculation. Um, and I think in that one day, like the secondary market, it was like, I don't know, like five, ten million dollars or something like that wow. of these things being traded. Right. And That's so um, the maximum royalty percentage of that in OpenSea is 10 percent. And that yep. also went directly to give directly. Right. So I didn't make a penny from this, never intended to make a penny of it. And in the end, I think it, uh, we've, we've donated over a million dollars. Like I think it's like a $1.4 million to give directly, um, uh, from, the, from this thing. But I didn't I, I, like, I, I, at the time I didn't, I didn't know like, you know, the, uh, that, that my brand would atta- attract that much attention. Um, and also I still don't fully understand all the forces at play, like in terms <laughs> of like, you know, the speculative bots, or, yeah. or, or whatever yeah. that would enable this type of thing. And, and I'm sure that there are people that lost out on it, like, you know, and, and mm-hmm. I feel really badly for that, but, uh, um, uh, it was, it, it was just, it was just kind of insane. Um, yeah, it's kind of a big story. Yeah, um, it's, so it's, it's a satirical it's, work. Um, sorry, go ahead, jump in. No, no, it, it, it no, I mean, it, it definitely, that definitely speaks to, I think, I mean, it seems a little bit like that kind of hysteria has died down a little bit but you could yes. say that 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 month period around about loot it was kind of like if i could characterize it the one thing that sticks in the memory is it was very much the like mint from contract month mm-hmm. right like yeah where for those who have no idea what we're talking about basically you know you can go in most cases you can go and acquire an nft from an nft marketplace um but really all that's happening there is that that's an interface that's interacting with a contract that lives on Ethereum usually. Um, and for that month, the loot project set a precedent. There were many others uh, uh, doing similar things at the time where you could go and directly mint from a contract. So there was no real interface to to interact with things. Oftentimes people didn't even know what they were getting. It was kind of like had this kind of like potluck kind of 
layers of layers of gambling. Let's be real, like gambling upon gambling upon gambling, um, a, a kind of dynamic to it where a lot of people were just jumping into things. I mean, it was just like, like so meta speculative because so, like yeah. even the artwork was speculative. I would <laughs> yeah. love to do a whole episode just, just I mean, on loot because it's so insane. Th- there's a documentary that needs to be made about that. <laughs> The mint from contract month, I think, right? <laughs> but like, but of course, I, I would say that like your project of of of, I, w- I won't say all of them, but your project certainly is up there of one that's like has redeeming qualities. One for the fact that like it's satirical, and number two for the fact that you managed to funnel a hell of a lot of money towards charity uh-huh. uh, off the back of that, right? Because like, uh, uh, yeah, but, but so one in a wild yes. month. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> those that lost out were just donating to charity. Exactly. Rather so than it, well, essentially, yeah. yeah. But I think some bots might have made off. Like, well, I mean, this is crypto, right? Like, the, like what's going on? But yeah, that happens and stuff. So, but I like, I mean, uh, like. Yeah, I am. I am proud of that project. Like, I didn't anticipate the way that like these things went down and stuff. But like, I stand behind. Um, like, you know, like what was said, like satirically. Like, people are people. The people are like they don't. They're like, well, is it a joke or not? And it's like, yeah. well, yes, yes, it is a joke. Satire is a form of art. Like, that's 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 what it is, right? Like, it comments on its social commentary on the space and also commemorates like some things, yeah. right? It will, mm-hmm. uh, so there's there's those two aspects to it, and uh, and and. Uh, like it was, it was coming from a place at the time, like my inspiration for doing it was, was kind of personal and it, and it came together in a few days, but like looking back, like I do, I do stand behind it. I have two, I have two comments on that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Excuse us if we're all over the place. I feel like this is, it's fun to actually oh, fine with that. We've, yeah. we've been interacting for a very long time and it's like, I, I, yeah, it's just nice to uh, shoot the shit. But like, yeah, first of all, I mean, I think the first point, have you ever, have you ever encountered, there's a, a, a term that, a guy called Brad Trammell came up with called the S-S-S-S-Lead. S-Lead? Yeah. So the whole idea is it's kind of like an esthete, but it's athletic. Oh, um, that's hard to pronounce. Yeah. It was it was a great article that was published uh, like the best part of a decade ago. And the whole idea was talking about, you know, the prevalence of firsts. So first being, you know, like you jump into YouTube and there was kind of like internal competition for someone to be the first person to comment. Right. And oh, so right. They, would, yeah. they would post first. <laughs> yeah. And he was making the analogy. I'm going to completely mess this up because I haven't read it for a long time, but he was making the analogy in the art world that now all of a sudden everyone has access to this kind of, you know, the positive is everyone has access to these like instant uh, distribution channels. I remember this article. He's talking also specifically about like when a new material is released. Oh, 100%. It's like an artist is like, okay, Vanta Black comes on the market and then the artist just oh, yeah. like, is like tries to claim that time. Right. Right. 100%. Yep. I mean, this is like the, the popular science period of, of the art world where it's like <laughs> right. some new some, blobby material. Yeah, exactly. Like a like, meme comes out. It's like, look, you can throw paint. Like you paint uh, the t-shirt with this and then you throw ketchup at it and the ketchup just Explodes falls right off. And it's like, okay, <laughs> right. give it, give it like we're in two weeks. We're going to see an installation uh, using this. gallery or yeah. something. <laughs> I'm cut that. Um, but yes. Um, <laughs> um, oh, but but, but there's this whole idea of like th- this absurdity, this absurdity of, of, of first. And I think it's particularly interesting related to, you know, the immutable permanent ledger of a blockchain, right? Because on yes. the one hand, you have in nft kind of archaeology circles i think a quite interesting discussion which is very much about like building a history right like and people are looking for it's like this was published to namecoin in 2014 well look i saw one this week there's what this there's a, a an nft that was published to namecoin in 2012 or whatever and it's like that's going to be a whole and i think that's that that's super legitimate in a way right because it's kind of like this is a culture this is a new community and people are 
people are placing a great emphasis on this kind of like very specific objective record, right? Like this is an image linked to a blockchain earlier than the, 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 the other image linked to the blockchain, right? But then the other side to it that's kind of funny, which I think your this first piece touches on in some ways, is all the messiness of subjectivity, right? Because on the one hand, you many claims are made about how a blockchain provides objective truth in some sense, right? Um, but of course, when you start getting a lot of people coming at it with a lot of different contexts, there's still a lot of room for debate about what may or may not have been first in the space. Mm-hmm. I would extend that argument even further to be like, there's a lot of things that you know are maybe done within the crypto context that you couldn't say are conceptually first, right? There's things, yeah. ideas that have existed since the 18th century or whatever that are just being repeated in some cases uh, uh, in this kind of permanent record. So I think I think the piece and, and this kind of emphasis on firsts is really good and is absurd. I mean, it, it is a legitimately absurd thing. Yeah, and like uh, like what what you were saying about um, uh, yeah, it, it's uh, definitely like 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 there's the archaeological like record and stuff, and like knowing what happened, like that's all like really interesting like discourse and stuff, and like let's record it absolutely. It, the the issue comes when when we start trying to decide like okay well how does this relate to the commodity value or whatever mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and like also the intentions of the of the people that are making those claims right mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. uh you know like i mean the like trying to construct value from something by you know by by canonizing it is you know a tried and true like business like strategy or like in all these other like uh, like this isn't the first time right uh, yeah, and like that—that—that's the part that's confusing to me, and kind of like, uh, like it motivated it was was about like yeah, like of course we should like you know have a record of like what was first and all these things, but it's like but 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 who is who are the people that are that are or organizations and stuff that are trying to use this in that way? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. it also ties in with generative art because, um, like like generative art is has in, having this like really you know uh, accelerated visibility right now and. And, uh, and, but before NFT, like generative art, like, you know, goes back a long, long ways mm-hmm. and, it, and, it, and it's only right now that, that, uh, that we're seeing these huge valuations and it's like, do the collectors understand many, many of the collectors of the capital that's flowing from like decentralized finance, um, or, uh, many of these people are seeing generative art only for the first time. Yeah, they may right. not be aware of the context at all. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and then it's like, uh, and then, and like, they might be thinking that they're buying something that's the, fir- the first or whatever. Yeah, totally. And, and, and so all these subjects kind of were, were, were stewing together in my mind when, uh, when I was thinking about this. Yeah. I mean, I feel like a lot of it is just the messiness of the newness of the space is like, we're yes. currently all figuring out together what those values are. You know, like how important is, you know, being first or like what, what's the concept, you know, how much do we value the concept? All of these kind of things are, you know, that that has been worked out over, you know, decades, centuries, whatever in the trad art world. And now we're kind of figuring that out for ourselves. Yeah. And I think that's that's one legitimate claim. I mean, beyond, I think, many kind of, you know, many claims that I, that I don't have all that much time for that, that are really critical of, of this space. One thing that I do think has a, a great degree of credibility is exactly that criticism, right? Of saying that I think that this area will mature, this whatever new art market will mature once it can kind of understand that while there are a lot of firsts and there are a lot <laughs> of precedents being made and there is a lot of progress and super interesting work being supported and made, you know, 
a lot of the times, you know, it isn't separate from history. Yeah. Right. right. That, and, and in fact, you know, even in, in recent history, I mean, this is something we've talked about a, a fair bit. Like we've been involved in, in this stuff for, for quite a while. And like, there's a lot, you know, there are a lot of precedents to artworks that, you know, weren't really able to be recorded on chain or weren't, be, weren't able to, uh, to be, yeah, put on chain at the time. That was well, like, for context, Matt and I and several friends in Berlin, and I mean, I guess it was globally, but it was largely in Berlin. We had a, a Slack group called Crypto Circle, and it yeah. was mostly artists who were interested in blockchain stuff. And so some of those artists are now very well known in the blockchain space because they did kind of, put, you know, do the things on chain. But a lot of artists were just doing things, experiments that weren't necessarily registered on chain. And some of those early experiments aren't acknowledged because right. they weren't registered in the same way, but it doesn't make them any less important. No, true. Right. And, and also beyond that, like some, just some of the conceptual foundations of stuff that's being explored, yeah. you know, these are ideas. And I think that's one thing that w- would represent great maturity for the space generally is looking back and being like, there were people in the twenties making yeah. work with really complementary themes that uh, that was also ignored by the art world at the time right. or was you know was largely not and it, it would be really really fun to be able to like take some of the um you know the the good focus on archaeology and the good focus on trying to establish canon and a record and and broaden the the parameters a little bit in order to be able to canonize and look at works you know from the 60s the 50s the 40s that you know, these were the black sheep of their time. And it turns out that some of the, their theses and some of the things that they were exploring with kind of came true. You know, they, they kind of, I mean, I, I'm trying desperately to get, there's a group called eToys that was like a Swiss uh, performance art group from the nineties. And there's a great book about them. I'm, I'm desperately trying to get them or someone related to them on the podcast who were exper- experimenting with what we would now understand to be a DAO at the time. And this was, you know, this was in the early to mid nineties. Um, right super out there performance art that ended up like having, you know, getting embroiled in like a weird stock dispute with an American kind of like <laughs> early dot com bubble company nice. that someone made into a book. And I'm like, look, you know, like they're ba- like, when you listen to some of their early lectures, they're pretty much describing a lot of the dynamics that right now would be considered very radical and kind of like very kind of uh, consensually uh, uh, supported. Right. It's um, really funny how, how this space is yeah. both like extremely historical with the on chainness and extremely ahistorical by not knowing the art history. But that's, but that's what I said. <laughs> well, I get to go back. And what's the reason? What's the reason for that? Right. Well, yeah. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Like, what are the what are the motivations? Right. It's because you you know you want to cement the uh, the importance of your investments. A hundred percent. Well, that's one of the wonderful things. Again, to go back to your piece, I think that like the language of absurdity is possibly the best way to address that. Right, because it's not necessarily coming in and like pointing fingers at people and, and calling hypocrisy or whatever whatever's popular online. Right, it's it's a means of like of, of addressing the elephant in the room without without kind of like uh, moralizing, throwing the baby out right. with bathwater. Right, yeah. and that, right, that, that, right. that's a, that's a great. Which then brings me to the to my great desire uh, uh, to discuss Frank Zappa with you. Um, oh right, okay. So I was reading a bunch of stuff, and Zappa's name kept coming up, and I'm like, well. If you want to talk about <laughs> satire and absurdism coupled with technical proficiency, uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so please uh, talk. To, uh, I mean, by all means, comment on what we just said. But I would love to get to Zapper at some point. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, uh, no, we could talk about Zappa now. Um, so, when I was, do you want me to tell you how I came to Zappa or something? Or yeah, like, sure. Okay. All right. Okay. So when I was, uh, I, I was a guitar nerd uh, growing up, right? Like. Uh, um, like electric guitar playing fast. I was into, you know, like, uh, uh, instrumental, 
Uh, well, uh, tried to be right, but uh, but like Joe, Joe Satriani and Steve Vai. I loved Steve Vai. First concert was going to see Steve Vai with a fake ID in Toronto, right? And like so, um, uh, uh, yeah, people were joking about the uh, board ape uh, board ape yacht club, like having like like it was all dudes. Uh-huh. But I guarantee you, there was more dudes at my Steve Vai concert than there was. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that right, so. pretty cool. There's the same bike. <laughs> <laughs> but but anyhow, so so Steve Vai, I was really into Steve Vai, and then through uh, Steve Vai, uh, um, uh, I I you know made the leap and then discovered Frank Zappa because Steve Vai was uh, uh, played in Zappa's band in the. Um, like breakout, like in the, when he was like 18 in the early eighties. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I came to Zappa and Zappa was like, it just blew my mind. Right. It was like, Whoa. Right. Like what, what is going on here? And um, just like so many things. Right. Um, like, I mean, I, I came to it through like, you know, the technical proficiency and like that, like, you know, that kind of nerdy kind of thing about the music and stuff, but he only used that as one element. And then like, you know, uh, there's, there's elements of some of Steve Vai's music that kind of had these like kind of offbeat, like humorous types of things. And then I saw where that came from because he was just sort of aping, um, like Zappa in a way. Right. Um, and so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, like so, so I came to Zappa like later in my life, like when I was like 20 or something. And that was what inspired me basically to drop out of school. Um, I was in studying computer engineering in, at Waterloo being like, you know what? No, this life is too short. Like if people are doing things like this, I got to I got to do something. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that inspired me to pick up and move to Toronto and try to um, try to do interesting things with music and recording. And And so I was I was trying to like naively kind of like, you know, uh, trying to trying to follow like copy you know like copy what Zappa was doing. So I set up my own studio and like was really you know like invested in learning about like the technology and becoming self sufficient to be able to do these things. Um, uh, and that uh, that's how that's how I came to do that that part of that part of my life where I was running a recording studio in Toronto for a few years. Um, that's wild. Uh, yeah, yeah exactly. like I mean, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. No, 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 go, 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 please. Uh, yeah, just, just, just like, yeah, it, it, it kind of changed the course of my life in a way, right? And so, even though like maybe Zappa doesn't come through completely, and like, in, in like, you don't see that influence in like much of my work and stuff, but um, like it did, it kind of set me on a path that I otherwise wouldn't have taken. Yeah, he, he's, a, he's a wild character. I, you know, I'm, I'm actually weirdly less familiar with his music more so than like the influence of his music. Cause like, sure. Yeah. Like in some circles for sure. Like, I mean, in certain experimental music corners, there's definitely like a huge prevalence of like John Zorny mm-hmm. kind of world. And I associate Zorn with Zappa in like a lot of ways, maybe cause they have a Z in their name. Did Fred Frith do work with Zappa? I think he did. Or with Zorn. <sighs> Am I just confusing them? <laughs> there's two Zs. Zs are uncommon. But I did find myself, um, I did find myself like going down a bit of a rabbit hole with him specifically related to like public speaking he did absolutely like, yes like i mean like that's that's the thing the music man. that's the thing the music is only like it's just it's only a part of it and like you could you could be deep into zappa and still not really consider like the music part of it right mm-hmm. because um like the public speaking and um like uh is is huge especially in the 80s like he came to prominence um because he uh there was there was some stuff about censorship with the uh lyrics of music yeah. um and the i think it was uh, tipper gore um oh yeah uh, um right there was all the, those things that happened uh in the 80s where there there was like a moral panic about mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. 
um, about lyrics in in rock music or something corrupting people, <laughs> and and so and he was like he those was pesky uh, he NFTs went, today. Yeah, I was about to say, well, <laughs> yeah, there you go. That period in history. <laughs> well, I've often thought, like, I really like like Frank is uh, Zappa died young, and I, and like it would just be so interesting to hear his takes. You know what yep. I mean? Like with mm-hmm. like just like all these things that are happening, and I think about that all the time. Yeah, he did work with Fred. Fred, I just looked it up. So I studied with Fred at Mills, and so I remember Fred speaking about him a lot and teaching about him it's really funny like not that many people from i guess the rock world penetrate academia in that way but at both mills and stanford i had professors there who would teach a lecture on zappa's work so obviously he uh captured the kind of like intellectual musician mindshare as well (laughs) (laughs) he did absolutely yeah yeah so yeah. I want to fill in fill in that. So so how was it how was it running a recording studio? Oh, um, and so I didn't know what I was doing to start with, right? <laughs> like it was just basically it's like you know what I can't I can't not do this, right? Like I can't I can't just like continue with this. Like uh, like I, I, at the time it was like the year two thousand and two or two thousand and one, and um, I'd already bounced back and forth about like whether I should be you know pursuing some type of professional degree to like, you know, be able to make, you know, enough money so that I could do things independently or whether I should just go and, you know, do music or something like that. So I, I kind of made the choice to, to, um, uh, uh, to, to do this, but I was on the fence about it. And so it, it was like, no, I got, I got to do that. So I, I, I moved to Toronto and, uh, uh, like looked for, like spent like months, like looking just for a place, like found a warehouse space, and then just started like, you know, bought secondhand gear and just started just started doing things and experimenting. And um, the space was pretty big. So um, uh, uh, it was it was interesting to be able to to record bands live off the floor rather than like doing a whole lot of mm-hmm. overdubs and things. So I, mm-hmm. I had it, I had it set up so that I could record a rock band altogether and uh, including the vocals. But usually we'd overdub the vocals, but the rest of it, just do it all in one take, which was. Um, it's, it's, it's a little, it's, it's, it's a little bit unique, uh, compared to, um, uh, sorry, not unique, but, uh, having the large, a large enough space to do that. It's not common that, that you, you would have that. And there was this thing, uh, happening with independent rock in Toronto at the time that there was, there was like a desire for people to try to, to try to, to kind of work in that way and have this big kind of room sound, kind of this mm-hmm. authentic recording experience that's sort of like a live recording, but still very controlled, um, mm-hmm. like sonically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, it, it was interesting. Like I learned a lot about, about like, you know, the practicalities of sound. Like I didn't, I didn't know yet, like, you know, mathematically or like in that type of way, like how these things worked. But, um, but, but, uh, uh, it was a lot of good direct experience. Um, in the end, like after doing this for a while, like I realized that, uh, like eventually there were like people were starting to record just on their own. Like the equipment was, was cheap enough yeah. that you could, you could, you know, so there wasn't really as much a need for studios. And I saw the writing on the wall. Um, and, uh, and uh, like, I'd become like, I was always in it sort of for, to learn about like how things worked and stuff. And towards the end of it, I realized I was very interested in music technology and like, you know, taking apart equipment learning how it worked. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to do what, people did in the seventies or whatever, I'm going to have an electrical engineering degree. Right. So I can yep. figure out how synthesizers work and how, how to build like microphones or whatever. So kind of naively, I went back to, to school to study electrical engineering, um, which of course, like we're not learning how to build analog synthesizers and, 
in an undergraduate electrical engineering degree, right? And like, I was just like torn when like I heard the professor say, it was like, oh yeah, in grad school, we're not making stereo equipment, right? And I was like, really? Well, that kind of sucks, right? Maybe I'm not in the right spot. But, uh, um, but like, uh, yeah, like then like, uh, it was great fundamental knowledge. Um, so studying electrical engineering, uh, um, uh, going back into this mode of like, you know, creating puzzles to solve for yourself. Right. And, and, and I had a really good time like absorbing like the very, you know, basic and fundamental stuff about like information theory and, um, electronics and communications and, and, um, uh, and all that things that sort of set the stage for later, um, coming back to this like 10 years later, um, and doing this art project. So fill in the, t- the, the time gap between finishing your electrical engineering degree and your, um, kind of like oh, rise sure. through the NFT ranks. <laughs> okay. All right. So it's, te- it's, it's 10 years. So this is, uh, so after finishing my electrical engineering degree, then at the time that was around, uh, it was like, there was the, uh, um, it was 2007 or 2008. So the economy was not great. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and also like, I like, again, like I didn't want to be stuck doing a boring job. Right. And, um, I was like, okay, well, what can I do? Right. And, uh, I had the opportunity at the time at the university of Toronto, there was also a very strong, uh, a, there was a grad program in uh, computer graphics. They have a very oh, strong group there. Cool. It's called yeah. the dynamic graphics project. And, and they've been there since the seventies, right. With, uh, human computer interaction cool. and, uh, and graphics, Ron Baker, you, uh, and, uh, Bill Buxton, right? So, um, so I had the opportunity to become part of that, and so it was it was not sound related, but it was it was uh, it was something creative, right? Like I was trying to find something that was more than just like hardcore technical. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, all right, I can do this, and so uh, um, so I went into the grad program there and studied uh, um, uh, uh, animation, um, and it was about um, uh, simulation of natural phenomena for purposes of artistic amu- uh, animation. Cool. So things like um, I was specifically uh, uh, found a, um, a unique way to simulate the motion of fluids. So like hey. water and gases and things like that. And there was, it was uh, um, found a method that had some neat trade-offs and was elegant mathematically. I published a paper about that at SIGGRAPH um, cool. and that was my master's degree. And then I dropped out again. I was in the PhD program for, again, uh, for a little <laughs> while and decided to to, to drop out again, because again, they're like, it's just, it's too, it's, it was, it's too kind of like, it's too, a little bit too constraining, right? Like in, uh-huh. in, in, in computer graphics, like I wanted to do generative art, right? But this is, this is, this was like, I could even probably dig up my original proposal that, that I had for my, uh, for my advisor and stuff, but they look at it and they'd be like, I oh, don't know, like, you know, that kind of stuff, like, you know, fractals and things like that. That's, that's already kind of been done. Right. Like, no, mm-hmm. we're doing like, we're doing real stuff here. Like, you know, like progress. Right. Um, <laughs> so, so, so I left, I left uh, the PhD program and um, through all this, like supporting myself through writing web applications. Right. That's always been sort of like the, uh, my source of income um, okay. and started doing metal work, uh, got married, had kids. And so then hey. that basically brings me to the point where, you know, live in sleep deprivation for several years and forget everything else. <laughs> so, and then during the pandemic, then making the, uh, starting this art project. And then six months later, posting on Instagram, uh, learning about NFTs from some of the people on Instagram recommending that I should maybe go and check out what's happening with NFTs. And so that led to, uh, learning about, about Ethereum and NFTs. 
Um, and, uh, like an interesting tidbit, like when I, when I, when I found out about Ethereum, like I'd heard of it, but I didn't even realize, like it was only in January or February of this year that I realized that Ethereum was a programmable distributed mm -hmm. network. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that it was programmable. So that was, uh, uh, that was eye-opening, <laughs> like the implications of that. I don't, like, again, like I've kind of missed like a whole lot. Like I feel like, you know, <laughs> a lot has happened, been sort of asleep for, for six or seven years. But I think it's so amazing each person's like individual art journey. And I often, you know, like young people ask advice, like, what should I do for X, Y, and Z? And I'm like, there is no roadmap. No. Like you were talking about how you were trying to emulate Zappa in order to like make it work yeah. out. And like, of course, that was part of the journey. And like, you know, that that did move you along. But of course, you weren't going to just like, you know, step for step follow in Zappa's footsteps. Like you have, you have to do your own journey. So it's really, really interesting to hear yeah, that's kind of like that. That's definitely the consistent, like the only consistent path, generally speaking, it's is I'm curiosity. Like, yeah, it's like it's being intrinsically curious to the point whereby you're kind of going to be doing it anyway. And then, <laughs> right, <laughs> we, like we had a long chat with with Ria Myers, which is which is really wonderful to speak to her about this specifically. And it's just like it's just so clear. And this is like such a such a wonderful thing about why you would pursue an art practice as just your life is like generally speaking the most interesting people it's like yeah like you just do stuff and you're constantly yeah you're constantly finding new and interesting ways to challenge yourself and then sometimes you stumble across something opportunity. that resonates with yeah, people there's yeah. just sometimes you stumble across opportunity but you don't really get there through like manufacturing that you know or at least if you do it doesn't really last very long you know it's i think like, some people right. do get there but it's maybe not the people i'm interested in yeah exactly <laughs> or, 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 or it's kind of like yeah it's like there's a there's a you know it's a um it's a highly risky pursuit to believe that you can manufacture that generally speaking it's right. like yeah like be curious and pursue things and and yeah if you make nine dumb decisions, one of them will be a smart decision. <laughs> <laughs> but you're continually right, learning right. along the way. Like you're picking up all of these skills with each new interest, totally. area of interest that you have, which is so cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like it, that's, that's kind of like the modus operandi, right? Like, um, um, like I, uh, like I find myself in a position where like, uh, like I, I didn't know before, like I'm learning, I'm catching up on many things like related to, you know, like, what do you, what do you do to be like a professional artist? Like I'd never thought yeah. about it before. Right. Like, it's yeah. just, this is an activity that I do. And like, you know, um, uh, I have, I've set my constraints so that I have the opportunity to do this. But, um, so now like, I feel a little bit like an imposter and like not knowing about like what, what takes place to be, to be an artist with a capital A, mm. um, it's it's been like yeah it's an ongoing learning experience so i think that's i think that's consistent for for everyone all I mean, of the best artists that i know yeah, all feel the same way <laughs> yeah i mean there's it's something we joke about a few times is like it's specifically speaking to like younger people is like you know unlike you know if you if you've had like a regular job or whatever there's there's certain milestones that that are just consensually understood you know like a degree for example it's like okay yeah you handed in your paper, like you got a grade above a certain level. Here's a piece of paper, right? You're now this, right? And there's there's very, very rarely an opportunity for someone coming along and being like, oh, by the way, you're a professional artist now. You know, it's just, That's true. It's, this yeah. odd, it's this odd cumulative thing where you're like, oh, I guess I've been so busy with this for a period of time. And all of a sudden, maybe there's money sufficient for me to be able to focus on this more than the other stuff that I was having to do for money before. 
I guess I'm an uh, an artist now, you know, but there's, there's never like a ceremony or like some kind of like right, rites yeah. of passage that occurs. And of course there's so many more layers of complexity on top of that. Right. Like, uh, but yeah, but the imposter syndrome is real and constant. I, I, I mean, we have that con- constant. Yeah. It's just like, I think maybe it's healthy. I don't know. What, well, maybe I, not. <laughs> well I, cer- I certainly think it's healthy too, too, because it's, it, it also means to some extent that you're not couched, right? Like yeah, you yes. can, you can get very comfortable with a, with a certain position and it's like, a, a constant imposter syndrome, syndrome is some kind of feedback that you're constantly pushing to do something that you're unfamiliar with, which is kind of good. Right. Yes, that's right. Because there is the comfort zone aspect, right? Like I've been very kind of like living in a bubble for like a long, long time. Um, and so uh, this has been like a great experience, like especially with speaking, like I've struggled with speaking in the past. And like I can see like putting myself out of my comfort zone and and doing these new things and stuff, I'm, I'm definitely growing like as a person, right? Mm-hmm. So. Well, I apologize that we're that we're that we're elastic banding this conversation in a gajillion different directions. <laughs> well, that, that style suits me. Like I said, that style suits me just fine. They're not they're like trying to keep things linear uh, feels very difficult, actually. Yeah. Because yeah. Well, like when I, I'm used to like I prepare everything. Like my my idea of like you know making music is like writing code and revising it until it like you know the system <laughs> does what I want. Right. Like as opposed to performing it. And so uh, like I like writing like, a, um, you know, and the nonlinear like aspect of it. But trying to translate that to doing something like in real time is is just a different modality. And I'm very in awe of like people like Frank Zappa who are just <laughs> in the moment and like, you know, improvising comedic things like cutting satire on stage like yeah. with, uh, and, and being completely comfortable with it. Or people that do improv comedy, like that stuff just, yeah. it, it floors me. It amazes yeah. me it's very that cool. people can do that. It's like a whole different skill set. Totally. I, I'm I'm also, this is, yeah, it, it like improv comedy particularly, I find super fascinating, particularly because of the element of risk, right? Because yes. it's like, <laughs> we've been to, there was a period of time when we were living in San Francisco where we went to comedy shows all the time. We were like doing music a lot and like, comedy was this great thing because we had some friends shout out actually if in case he ever since george chen who's like a bay area legend uh, <laughs> music like diy music legend but he got deep into into stand-up and uh all of a sudden was putting on these shows and like you would go and you know i hope it doesn't sound dickish to say this but like 99 out of 100 would suck but then one would be right. unbelievable and i was like oh i get this because you know we used to go to noise shows and stuff and it was kind of the same dynamic like sucking was just like what you do to get good, you know, like, like, right, like right. it's not the same level of judgment that we might encounter now where, you know, you go to a festival and it's like, you better not suck. <laughs> like, right, right. Um, but like, but, but, but it's really important for that reason because you're, you're kind of in the crucible, right? This is like a workspace. Like people are working yes. things out and yeah, like I would look and watch some people and be like, even though this is sucking, like the amount of respect I have for you versus our very measured, you know, kind of choreographed, uh, uh, construction of stuff is is power is super high because it's like I don't know how you do that you know that it's very inspiring and super cool. It's yeah. an entirely the, different the, muscle, yeah. The the opportunity for failing is uh is is like really important, right? Like I'm learning all this like because I'm learning about like my kids, like you know, and how they learn and things like that, and child development and stuff. And like yeah, having like a safe place to fail, like an opportunity yeah. to fail, is just so crucial. Mm-hmm. So totally, yeah. I'm really curious because, you you know, you alluded to this a little bit already that, you know, things have changed quite significantly for you over the past year. I wonder, like, 
yeah, how you're, I mean, just to be basic, like, how are you feeling about it? Like, what, yeah. what does this mean for your life? And are you, you know, I mean, I assume you're shifting gears and you're full time focusing on artwork from now on, probably, I'm assuming. Is that correct? Um, yeah, like, I mean, uh, uh, like before this, like, my job was, uh, I was uh, making uh, uh, wedding rings, like uh, hand forging stainless steel and titanium and other metal uh, wow. wedding rings in my garage, right? Cool. So, yeah. uh, wow. several years ago, that business became viable. And that's actually what I've been doing um, since before since before that. So it hasn't been like, I didn't have like a job I needed to quit. So it's this transit, this transition in terms of like being full-time or non-full-time artist is not really, uh, like the, is not really the point. Um, but, Mm -hmm. uh, but overall, like just like in terms of the change, uh, the biggest change has been just having so many more, uh, like sort of channels of information Mm -hmm. and, uh, expectations and, and, uh, or perceived Mm -hmm. expectations or, just like all these things that are new that are just like all at once. And it, mm-hmm. and to be honest, it's been very, it's been, it's been anxiety provoking mm-hmm. um, yep. to be honest. Um, and I think that a lot of people in the space, either artists or just, just, uh, or, or, or everybody might be feeling the same way because of the overload and, and various like motions that are coming out of it. Um, but what, what, what I'm trying to center on is that like it, Part, part of it is also the uncertainty because yeah. like I said, like, uh, um, like trying to figure out what is what, like trying to feel out, figure out like what is, what, what is real, what's not, what will last, what will not. Mm-hmm. And, and because that's all sort of information that will factor into how you decide to proceed. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, yeah, like, I mean, bottom line, like, I mean, I'm super like, you know, grateful and, and, uh, fortunate for all this to take place. Um, but uh, but I am like, you know, kind of in a state of not really knowing like how to sort of conduct myself like yeah. like moving forward. And par- paradoxically, I actually have less time to work on my like art practice yep. than I did before at this same time before yep. NFTs. Right. So is that because um, you're managing community so much and like collector expectation and things like that? Just like general part of it. Part um, part of it. Part of it is like. um is just like the yeah like the many many channels of things like that are mm-hmm. happening like you know um and like responding to to all those things um and 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 part and part of it is just like the 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 anxiety of uncertainty yeah. mm-hmm. um and 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 just like you know like not not being able like my 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 practice like revolves on like you know having sort of my sphere of control and like having zero expectations and just being able to explore in a playful manner. Right. And so getting back to that and sort of trying to ignore everything else that's going around and, and then getting back to that mode is, is, uh, is, is quite difficult. And Mm -hmm. and I think that like in the long term or in the midterm, in the long term, I think that like I will adjust and, 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 uh, and get back to that as like, um, as, as, uh, as the uncertainty sort of like, you know, the longer things go on, you fight, you figure out what's less certain, what's more. And, and I think I'll adjust, but in the meantime, that's, what's been contributing to it. Well, thanks for being honest about that. Cause I think that's actually really wonderful to hear. I mean, I think that like a couple of things come to mind there. Like I teach a class with, with younger students and this tension comes up, I think a lot for a lot of people, it certainly has come up for us where, you know, in the one case, when you're talking to young artists who are like 18, 19 you know, they're so hungry and they're so particularly like we're of a older generation, you know, 
they have all the tools available to them. And every few days, you know, someone they know or someone who they may relate to, you know, blows up and stuff happens. Mm -hmm. And it's like the tension between like slowly and deliberately creating a practice for yourself and that desire to like take advantage of any opportunity or like try and seek opportunity all the time is really real and creates like intense anxiety. And I think that that anxiety exists irrespective of whether you find success or not, honestly. Mm-hmm. And right. the other thing, like when, when I talk to them, this is one, one thing I try and say to all of them is I'm like, look, like you better create a practice because when there's demand created around your work, you're going to have so much less time to go back into that state. You know what I mean? And not to overly fetishize it, but like, there is a beautiful state where you have time and you can be deliberate and you can just spend time exploring things and kind of failing and messing up and then trying some things that don't work out. It's like But really establishing what's important to you exactly. and what are the fundamentals of your practice. Establishing fundamentals, exactly. Because right. the second that there's some demand around what you do, the sad reality actually in a lot of cases, and we struggle with this sometimes, is like the sad reality is there's going to be a whole bunch of people that want you to do the same thing that you've done loads of times. Mm-hmm. You know, right. and so, you know, you'd better like what your practice is. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Because like, because, because all of a sudden things get complicated. And then, you know, it, as you say, like it becomes a full-time job to be the artist, which is very different from making art. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like managing expectations or whatever. But the one thing I will say just from, from afar, you know, is like, I think that like there's, there's a great kind of coherence and there's a great kind of honesty to what you do and the work that you make and the the messaging behind it in particular. I was looking over your website earlier and it's like, you're very clear about what you do. You're very clear about what this is and what it is not, you know? So it seems like you have a great foundation and, and also like looking at the different people who've stepped up to support your work, like, you know, also in I, a space where one could be really opportunistic. Absolutely. Yeah. It, I think says a lot about the practice that you have, have not kind of, you know, taking that route. Yeah. Not, not to rant, but this is real. We talk about this a little bit, you know, it's like we, we try and be, you know, in, in a sense with, with a lot of the crypto work that's being done, one of the conversations we'll have with ourselves is just being like, let's try and not do anything that we wouldn't have done anyway. Right. Like naturally there is this new medium and there is this, there is a new audience and there are new tools to play with. And a lot of that experimentation can be really fun, but like, Let's just yeah, like try and keep it tethered somewhat to the practice because um, then we'll feel good about it. And then you'll have like, you won't have so many regrets, you know, and like, or you won't have, you won't amplify your anxiety. Cause I definitely know of other circumstances where there's people who are like, cool, like the thing to do right now is to make 5,000 things and sell them for a ton of money to a bunch of strangers you know, and you're who so then have expectations. Exactly. Who then have expectations and they're in the discord and they're like, why aren't you you yep. doing whatever they think you need to be doing. And I'm like, you know, look like that, that's, that's a lot to manage actually. And over yep. time, things like reputation and things like having a core fundamental practice become a really important guide rail and a really important kind of, yeah, just a really important constant for you to be able to manage whatever comes forward. Right. Sorry. Sorry if this is, this is definitely getting into very honest territory, but like <laughs> well, but you, you get my point. Right. And I think you're set up in a really good way for that. Well, I, I, um, I appreciate all the things that you said and it's, it's very encouraging and like reassuring to hear, to hear many of those things. Um, and so, yeah, like having like that, that's what I'm trying to work towards is trying to find like a ground or an anchor or something. And then, and then just like measure it from, from that. Right. Instead of like yeah. basically separating, you know, like, yeah, signal from noise. Um, and 
and uh, and and then and then tying it to that that deliberate practice. Yeah, totally. Yeah, because that foundation also it's like yeah because that's there it can then you can then fork that or take that in a million different directions and there's still a consistent narrative. You know, whereas like you're not yeah. Anyway, we've been talking about that for a long time. <laughs> it also no. just help, helps to build a, a body of work over a lifetime that yeah. has some, makes some sense to yourself, you know. But all right. I'll say is you're you're certainly not alone in that feeling. But this is like this is like a very regular conversation that, <laughs> that we that we need to have with people. You know, it's like it's like it's 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 been a really uncertain couple of years. On top of the fact that this has been an uncertain year of new weird art stuff happening cool stuff but i think the important thing is is like you know every year there's a an artist that has great success that maybe didn't have it the year before i think what's really fundamentally new here you're listening to the free version of this podcast if you would like to hear the full version and support this series please visit patreon.com interdependence this podcast is ad free and only possible through patron support thank you (laughs) 